This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Rajiv Jain, and he has quite the fascinating background. Um, He is currently Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at his own firm, GQG Partners, which manages about $24 billion. Previously, uh, he was co-CEO and and CIO at Vontabel Asset Management. Uh, If you are at all interested in a wealth of things from uh, global and international and EM investing to portfolio management and the process that goes in uh, to putting together a portfolio, you're going to find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. Rajiv is is both humble and soft-spoken, but is filled with all sorts of insights and wisdom. Um, I know I got a ton out of the conversation. I just found lots and lots of things that he said to be intriguing and fascinating, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my conversation with Rajiv Jain. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Rajiv Jain. He is the chairman and chief investment officer of GQG Partners, a firm with over $24 billion in assets under management. Uh, Rajiv was the 2012 Morningstar International Manager of the Year. He runs a number of different funds, the Goldman Sachs GQG Partners International Opportunities Fund, the Partners Emerging Market Equity Fund, and the Partners U.S. Select Equity Fund. Last year, his global fund was positive while the benchmark was down 9%. Over the past 20 years, we've seen outperformance in all of the areas Rajiv works in, uh, between 300 and 400 basis points. Rajiv Jain, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation because you're one of these people who have been shooting the lights out. uh, And I think most of the investing public is not very familiar with you or your background, which is quite fascinating. Tell us about your personal history and how you got to running a a large asset management firm. Yeah, thanks, Barry. So I think, uh, first of all, I, I, I was born in India, grew up in India. Uh, and I got hooked onto stocks when I was in high school. Uh, I guess my dad wanted to keep me busy during summer, so he gave me some. Those days, you get old, you know, stock certificates and dividend checks. He said, right. "Why well, don't you tally those and which dividend haven't come in?" And I used to go. I remember going to broker, and he was an ex-army guy, and he said, "Look, I need to talk to a dad. That why the hell he allows a high school kid to come to this brokerage house? Look, you see the averages around how <laughs> all the people sitting here. So that's how I ended up getting hooked." Uh, came to U.S. when I was, uh, you know, 21, to 21, 22. And, um, and yeah, I've been uh, doing the same thing ever since. I guess I, I can't do anything else. So let's talk a little bit about your background at uh, Vontabel Asset Management. You were there for a good couple of years. Tell us what that shop was like and how that led to the decision to launch your own firm. Yeah, so it, it, it was it was a part of a, a large Swiss bank, and it was kind of a small boutique where uh, first seven eight years they, we couldn't even afford a trader, so I had to I used to put in my own trades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I joined as a co PM for global and and emerging markets uh, and international actually in 1994. And uh, what's the the most interesting experience I would say um, would be the I became the CIO in 2002, and quickly 70 percent of the clients fired us. Uh, really? Yeah. Why was that? Well, because the past performance wasn't great and there was a change in PM. So okay. that's my way of saying it, that I wasn't the one to blame. <laughs> <laughs> so so you were, did you begin as an analyst also? How did, how did you work your way up to portfolio manager yes. or PM? Yeah. So um, uh, I started at, um, at the UBS or Swiss Bank Corporation then as an analyst. Mm-hmm. And I did become a co-PM after a couple of years. So what? Uh, this is a question that I've had people ask me. You're the person, perfect person to ask this. What is the difference when you're looking at stocks as an analyst and trying to take an individual equity apart versus making the buy or sell decision as a portfolio manager? Very different approaches, aren't they? Yeah, look, I think I think you're absolutely right. There's a big difference between the two, and I would categorize in two parts of that. The first is 
as an analyst, you expect to know as much as you can. But as a portfolio manager, you really don't have that luxury of waiting for getting, let's say, 90% of the information which is knowable. You can't get to that level mm -hmm. of certainty. But as an analyst, you are expected to know more. That's a big difference. And I think that sometimes when analysts become PMs, they sort of miss that. Uh, they keep ending looking for more and more information, which you know can, can, uh, can be um, you know, paralyzing. The second part is when you're looking at a portfolio, the risk management or the part of the portfolio construction part become paramount. Mm -hmm. You may love the name, and you actually tend to love all the names you own in the portfolio, but when you're constructing portfolio, the the you may end up taking too much risk in a particular area. And I mean, if you go back to 2008, 2009 crisis, a lot of folks blew up because they had too much in an area because- Concentrated risk in Concentrated risk because, oh, we love this area and got cheaper and we love it even more and it kept getting cheaper. <laughs> so uh, you gotta be careful about, you know, and, and most of the time it's the things that we love that kill us. So let's talk a little bit about that and portfolio construction. I think a lot of individual investors, to them, portfolio construction is really just the stocks they've collected over the years. You obviously approach it very differently. How do you think about portfolio construction in terms of what your holdings are, in terms of how they're diversified by either sector or geography, and, and lastly, about the risk you just mentioned? So... Um the first part is that uh, you got to make sure that the business would be around for longer term, right? I mean, um, if you're not sure how the business is going to look like five years out, you probably not shouldn't be, shouldn't be invested. It doesn't mean you own for five years, but you got to be careful because markets anticipate deteriorating fundamentals a lot faster than than we we like to think. Mm -hmm. uh, if 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 the drug is expiring in three years, guess what? Markets start discounting a lot sooner, mm -hmm. and you see a bunch of names which are selling at very low multiples because oh, it's still a few years out, and it's it's a low multiple, so on and so forth. The market's already discounting deterioration, right? So that's part of the first risk management. Is that a little bit of a value trap situation for people? Yeah, exactly, and I think I think if you look at what has happened last few years, the reason why a lot of folks have underperformed, and I feel. Investing is nothing but a journey of learning from your mistakes. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to evolve and adapt, you won't survive long-term. It's very easy to say, look, I found this mousetrap and how wonderful it has worked since 1930s. So my question is, how many analysts were around in 1980s, let alone 1930s? Maybe the market become a little more efficient. So the the low multiple trap is 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 essentially markets being much more forward-looking than we would we gave it credit for. So you sound a little bit like Ray Dalio, who talks about mistakes and the learning process and improving. How long should an investor expect that journey to take before they have some degree of competence or even um, actual skill in managing assets? That's a hard question to answer because it, it, it's a function of A, are you truly trying to look at in a, on a very broad spectrum? the broader the spectrum, chances are you will learn a little bit faster. In other words, if, you, if you're focusing on one specific sector only, you're too narrowly focused. Mm -hmm. When you operate in the silo, you really don't know the, you know, the, the, the there's no cross-pollination. Mm -hmm. I feel I'm a better US manager because I do emerging markets and vice versa. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Rajiv Jain. He is the chairman and chief investment officer of the $24 billion firm GQG Partners. So let's talk a little bit about the launch of, of the firm. You co-invest alongside with your clients. I think you've, you've said previously something like 75% of your own assets are in your funds. D discuss the idea behind eating your own cooking. My personal belief is that managing somebody else's money is a privilege. It's an honor to manage somebody else's money. And our decision to impact how our clients do and whether they have a dignified retirement or not, right? So when we talk about, if you have to ask, I personally feel, if you have to ask a single question anybody, the question would be, what percentage of your net worth are you willing to put in your own funds? Mm -hmm. Rest is talk. Because that, that, that gives you a very good view of A, how they think about investing because you become much more absolute oriented, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you think about taxes or you know ta after tax returns, uh, the fees and so on and so forth. So it, it sort of encompasses almost everything. Mm -hmm. And I have vast majority of my wealth. I don't have money in any other long only manager, long short private equity, 
Uh, we don't allow any personal trading at GQG, for example. Uh, every employee is an investor. And I'm quite proud of the fact that we have quite a bit of skin in the game. Hmm. That, that's quite interesting. The The expression I recall from years ago was, I can't hear what you're saying because what you're doing is speaking so loudly. That seems to apply uh, dead center to this, doesn't it? Thank you. Yes, it does. So so let's talk a little bit about, um, about how you go about selecting stocks and making the decision to, to get rid of them. You've described your quote, clinical approach to shedding positions when they no longer fit your thesis. Explain that. There's been plenty of evidence, and I can tell you with my own experience, that buying is easy, selling is where the, where the trouble starts. Mm -hmm. And there's been recently been academic you know, work on that, that portfolio managers do a pretty good job buying. It's just selling when, when, when things tend to go wrong. Yep. And, 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 and people describe me as a kind of a ruthless seller. I'm happy to go back again and revisit. And sometimes I would sell just to clear up my mind and revisit it. Mm -hmm. um, when, when we talk about selling, it's the best selling happens when things are subtle, not when they are in papers. Mm -hmm. And when things are as subtle, it means, does the thesis actually hold or is beginning to shift a little bit? Mm -hmm. And I think, I, think, I think that's where you almost have to be willing to be wrong and admit it you're wrong. In fact, one of the tests I feel for, for my analysts is, have you found new ways of losing money? Explain that, new ways of losing money. Like investing, as I said, is a journey of learning from mistakes. How do we expand our investing horizon? Horizon means here our, our breadth, mm -hmm. not time horizon. And that means that you have to experiment sometimes in areas that you're not invested before. If you've only invested in financial, you keep investing in financial, guess what? Last decade hasn't been too good for you. That's right. In the 90s, if you didn't know how to invest in financials and tech, you wouldn't have done well. In the next decade, if you only did that, you probably wouldn't have done well either. So you need to be able to experiment. And when you talk about experimentation, losses have to be small, but that's how you would learn because the only way you really learn is by putting some some money on you know on 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 the stocks paper trading doesn't get it done paper trading doesn't get it done it overstays the reality because as somebody has said the the money's made by the how thick is your stomach lining rather than how, how much IQ you have hmm. that that's really interesting what about the selection process you you seem to have come up with a process that's a little different from everybody else as the results have shown what are you doing um when you're thinking about building a portfolio and making individual stock selections? First of all, um, balance sheet matters, right? So, so that there's, you need to eliminate weaker companies first. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, that's an easy one. Negative right? screen, get rid yeah, of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Huh? So it, it is not about trying to find the best company, it's avoiding the worst. In fact, investing like a lot of things in life, it's sometimes easier to, to identify what shouldn't be done rather than what should be done. Mm -hmm because that just increases the odds of success. So you avoid mistakes, and even if everything else is okay, you're way ahead of people whose portfolios are filled with mistakes. Exactly, in fact, I've kind of joked around, the reason why I've survived over the longer run is because you just avoid blowing up, and enough people blow up, and you'll be top quartile just because you don't mm -hmm. blow up. So I think, I think from a process perspective, first of all, you take out the weaker balance sheets, uh, and the second part is, think about the capital allocation decision managements I've made. In other words, how much, what returns have they generated on incremental incremental capital that they put in the business? Uh, return on capital is probably the single biggest, you know, measure that 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 I feel one has to look at. Valuations comes distant second or third. Really? So so let's start with that first piece, screening out the negative, the weaker companies. What are you looking for? Are you looking for lots of debt? Are you looking for no real growth in uh, revenue or and income? Or are you looking at the management team themselves or all the above and more. Management team is is second. Mm -hmm. First would be numbers. In other words, you know, leverage is an easy one. Right. Uh, but also in terms of uh, you know the cyclicality of earnings stream relative to their own sector, the uh, the the returns that they're generating relative to their own space. Because you can't compare a bank and and, and a European utility, right? Sure. And I think I think when people talk talk about quality, they look at much more on an absolute basis across the board. But banks, the best time to buy banks is actually when the numbers don't look good, mm -hmm. right? That's not necessarily true for staples. In fact, if you look at even technology, last 40 year, if you back test the numbers, 
the most expensive decile has outperformed the, the cheapest decile in tech and in pharma. So in other words, momentum is much more powerful than value in those sectors. Uh, uh, okay, so I want to be or careful. am I overstating Yeah, that? no, you're overstating the momentum issue. It's not mm -hmm. a momentum issue. It's much more about, well, first of all, is the balance sheet good? And the second thing is the growth coming through. Mm -hmm. So growth is important. But, 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 but you need the combination of those, and then you look at the management, and then you look at the valuations. Hmm. A lot of, uh, because uh, think about this way. If, 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 if you're moving to Florida, would you call a realtor and say, get, you know, give me the cheapest neighborhood? No, of course not. Well, why do we do that in stocks? Well, because there's this belief that um, on average, if your um, PE ratio or price to book or whatever your preferred metric is, um, the cheaper stocks over long periods of time should outperform the most expensive stocks. That, at least, is the common belief that's out there. Well, see, the, I have a lot of problem with averages. Averages like your foot might be in oven, your head might be in freezer, and on average, you're dead. <laughs> that, that's, a fair, um, that's a fair description. So, so, so I think, I think you've got to be careful about averages because, in this, especially in this day and age, there isn't enough appreciation that how many, how many buy-set analysts were operating 30 years ago versus today? <laughs> Five percent, if if that much. Exactly. And what about fifties and sixties? And you see managers showing how well price to book had worked in nineteen thirties. Well, it's wonderful. You're fooling yourself. You're not fooling anybody else. That doesn't work anymore. It didn't work in the seventies. It doesn't work in the seventies. So the markets do get efficient. I mean, we let's not kid ourselves. The question: How are you evolving to incorporate that? I mean, you can buy your dozens of ETFs to incorporate, you know, which run on quality. So if you're backward looking quality, it has stopped working. I'm Barry Ritholtz. My extra special guest this week is Rajiv Jain. He is chairman and chief investment officer of the $24 billion firm GQG Partners. He runs a number of different funds, um, all of which have outperformed over the past uh, 20 years. He has handily beaten his benchmark. Last year, his global fund uh, was about 900 basis points above uh, the benchmark, which was down about... 9% for the year. Uh, let's talk a little bit about international investing. Uh, one of your biggest holdings is India, uh, makes up about 27% of the fund ballpark. Uh, why are you so enthusiastic about India? What do you think is happening there? And what companies have caught your attention uh, in that country? Yeah, so India is big only in the emerging market fund. In international, we only have 5% mm -hmm. uh, and similar in global. I think, I think, I think, there are a couple of things. One is, uh, well, first of all, there's a risk of me being biased, right? Uh, for some strange it's where reason, you're from, right? <laughs> it's a, so I think I think got to be careful about their own. So biases. you have home country bias even after you leave the country. They, they look, they, they, you they, you feel you know it better, mm -hmm. right? So you guys, what I'm saying, you got to be careful, right? You you shouldn't surprise folks who are from France. Chances are they would have more in France, so home country bias exists, right? But I think in this case, um, uh, there's a difference, as particularly now. I've, 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 India wasn't always that big. Reason is because if you look at what's happening around the world, there's earnings pressure. So domestic oriented businesses are actually delivering better earnings growth. Mm -hmm. And India is a very large domestic market. China is too, and so in Brazil in, within the emerging market context. Uh, same in US actually, right? I mean, mm -hmm. multinationals which export a lot of China are not exactly doing that well, versus domestic oriented stocks are just doing better. So India is a big domestic market and you can get fairly high, um, high quality, predictable businesses which are still selling at reasonable valuations, um, and hence we have higher exposure in the EM fund. So, so let's talk about Russia. You were quote massively underweight Russia for eighteen or so years. Now you say you're overweight Russia. What has changed, um, either in your view or in Russia itself, to to have that big shift? Look, first of all, from a philosophical perspective, investing is all about change. It's not about static. In other words, Singapore might be a wonderful place, but if it's deteriorating, that's not, you know, that's a problem. In Russia, I'm not saying it's going to be next Switzerland or anything like that, but it's improved quite a bit compared to where it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. Corporate governance has improved. Um, uh, and they talk about manage, uh, companies which are actually very well positioned and are selling for very attractive prices. So there, there's a big difference versus, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. And that's, I was very bearish in Russia for, I'm talking about 20 years now, mm -hmm. uh, till a few years ago. Uh, and today it looks actually reasonably attractive. Some of the folks who have, have pointed out that Russia is always cheap, but the concern is rule of law. And how do you know that 
the state isn't just going to arrest your CEO or, or capture assets? How confident can you be investing in Russia that the normal rules apply? I thought you were describing China. CEO gets arrested and start collapsing, right? I mean, the la- <laughs> I guess it happens in other countries. It, it happens. It's other happened countries. here also. We've had people arrested, and the stocks haven't done that well. But it seems to be a little more endemic to yes. certain countries. No, you're absolutely right. I think. I think. First of all, that's where you got to see whether the business interests are aligned with the with the government policy and what the you know what the outlook would be longer term. Mm-hmm. So, um, so f- one interesting fact. If you look at the last 20 years, Russia has been one of the best performing markets versus China and most of the other markets, by the way, mm-hmm. and which is not how people think about it. Uh, and the reason is that you can get some really high barrier to businesses, which are very well aligned with what the government policy is. And, and, and ironically, because of the capital flight issues, actually a lot of companies pay a lot of dividend. So you're basically getting dividend return on business that are still growing at reasonable you know at reasonable prices mm-hmm. so I think I think it, it's a combination of the two um so if you can buy a business where the bond yields are foreigners are willing to buy bonds of a same company at four and four and a half percent why the stock yielding 12 percent that's hmm. a question right I mean the corporate governance should apply as much on the bond side sure but 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 if you can get truly good business like Spurbank for example uh it has 60 percent deposit franchise in in deposit market share in China, in Russia and the banking system is consolidating rapidly i mean it's it's meaningful consolidation over the last 5 years so the central banker nivolina has done a very good job but it's yielding almost 8% growing 20% plus roe selling at six time earnings so it is i think i think i think you can do a lot worse mm-hmm. in other places so do you bring a different sort of fundamental analysis to different countries do you have to think about stock selection in, let's say, China or Russia differently than you would think about Singapore or Vietnam? How do you uh, look at each country with their own unique political situation? You mentioned aligning the interests of the company with the government. Is it the same approach country to country, or do you have to adapt depending on the local politics? Yeah, so I think I think there's clearly a little bit of adaptation needed. I mean, if you're investing only in U.S., if you, for example, if you're running a U.S. equity fund, um, there are a lot of things you wouldn't necessarily have to think about, mm-hmm. right? I mean, some country companies have currency risk, but most don't have that. On the other side, if you're investing in emerging markets, you you know, country risk matters. So what I call a macro switch off. You don't look for a good macro. You can't say, oh, gee, China's growing at six percent. I'm gonna try to find companies there. That doesn't work. However, if there's political risk in a company, if the if the company is getting contracts from the government, of they or they are, for example, last summer there was increased risk in Chinese tech companies. Mm-hmm. Now that seemed to have gone down a little bit. I'm not saying you sell out because of that, but you got to be aware of the macro switches. And by the way, that in, if I take a five year view, I think the political risk is increasing in some of the largest U.S. companies too. It is not here and now, but it's not zero risk that you could see. You know, you could see some some antitrust investigation in some of the larger companies, the sure. Amazons of the world. So it is not a factor today, but it'll be naive to assume it's not a factor if you're taking five-plus year view. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Rajiv Jain. He is Chief Investment Officer and Chairman at GQG Partners, a $24 billion firm. Let's talk a little bit about your strategies. You're long only, so... What are your goals? Is it to beat the benchmark, or are you, or are you targeting higher risk-adjusted returns? What What is the the goals of of your specific strategies for each of your funds? So the official objective is outperform the benchmark by a few hundred base points with less risk. So losing less in down markets is important. So it's much more conservative compounding. And the fact that every employee is an investor, that's where the alignment of interest matters. Right? So we're not talking about asset growth. It's all about can we compound our money along with our clients' money. Mm-hmm. And that means that it's much more absolute-oriented rather than relative-focused. And, and just as an example, in 2018, um, the international benchmark was down about 9%. Your fund was positive, slightly positive for the year. So there's an example of managing into a downturn. I, I have to think clients are pretty happy about that sort of situation. Yeah, no, I think I think that's you know, that's the reason why we've seen uh, we continue to see uh, you know reasonable inflows from some of the most sophisticated institutions uh, is that it's all about I think look I think I think 
you got to be careful about relative returns. You can't focus on too much. And it doesn't right. matter whether it's a pension fund or an individual. Right. If the market's down 40% and you're only down 20%, you're still down 20%. That, that that's true, but uh, if you're long only, you can't manage that, and and there's no free lunch. So if you're trying to manage it too much, mm-hmm. you leave the upside. And seeing it on the hedge fund side, right? I mean, yes, you, they didn't lose that much in maybe 2008, but you gain more plus some over the next decade because the markets, you know, tend to go up over the longer run. Right. So let's talk about capacity. You you recently announced one of your funds was going to be capped at 10 billion dollars. Is that is that right? Was it a fund or was it a separate? Uh, managed accounts. So it's a uh, f- well, there are multiple vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's a product issue. Now I'd, I've run thirty billion in emerging markets before. Performance was fine, but I did lose a lot of flexibility. So we've you know we've said we'll soft close. Uh, in other words, existing clients can add uh, at ten billion. So but you won't take into new clients once you hit that ten billion dollar. We'll, we'll keep the, maybe the, some of the mutual funds open. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for technical reasons, but but we'll 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 start hitting the brakes as we get to ten. So so wh- in emerging only, but global international we have a lot of capacity because they're very large liquid. Portfolio. So what is it about emerging market that limits the capacity? Is it there's just not that many big companies, or what what specifically puts a cap on on that? Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I was just mentioning that that I've run thirty billion in EM and probably was the largest pool under single manager. Uh, how and the performance was okay, uh, but you clearly lose nimbleness. Mm-hmm. Emerging markets are actually much larger space than 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 the perception seems to be. There are a lot of very large liquid names, and I think I think I mean for example the Chinese tech space itself is probably a trillion and a half dollars. Sure. It didn't exist a decade ago, right? You know, pretty much. So and so is China is China still technically EM? Have we? When does that get moved? Didn't yeah. MSCI just do a whole thing with? China and EM, uh, do we still think of China as an emerging market, or or have they graduated yet? No, look, I think I think I think if you look at any sort of um, uh, commonsensical way, from in terms of rule of law, in terms of you know right to you know uh, you know your, your property rights and so on and so forth, China is clearly an emerging market. Mm-hmm. Emerging market, it's not a developed. Now, some is Shanghai developed more developed than New York. It feels that way mm-hmm. if you go there, but it doesn't mean the whole country as such. Mm-hmm. Quite, quite interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about how you um, think about entering positions. I know some managers do a pre-mortem where they write out what their full explanation of why they're making the uh, investment. So afterwards, they can look back and say, this is exactly um, what they were thinking, whether it works well or goes bad. What, what do you do when you're in the midst of uh, adding a new name to a portfolio? First of all, you need true diversity. And everybody talks about diversity, but if you look at our team, there are folks who have done long, short equity, long, short credit, investigative journalists, uh, you know, um, forensic accountants. You want to you want to have a true devil's advocacy, right? Um, and and that means that multiple pairs of eyes will look at the name. And I work as a full-time analyst and a part-time BM. There's no name that'll go that has gone in over the last 25 years without me actually working on a name, you know, mm-hmm. having some, some sense. Obviously, some of the analysts would do a lot deeper work on those names. And then we want to have a separate pairs of eyes, whether from an accounting perspective or from an investigative journalist, which is more to sort of get a sense of where, um, you know, are there any sort of grassroots issues that we are missing? For example, if there's any governance issues, so we don't talk to existing employees, but are there any governance issues that we should be aware of? Any regulators that we, we should be aware of? Uh, sort of, you know, uh, kind of ESG um, uh, uh, hygiene, uh, if 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 you know, mm-hmm. if you will. So, what that does is is that again, the idea is to reduce the chance of a blow up. The idea is not to find the best name. The idea is to eliminate the weakest name. So, you mentioned investigative journalists. You hired Carolyn Q from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. What was the thinking behind saying, "I know, I need an investigative reporter on my team." It's interesting if you think about what we do. It is it is kind of investigative journalism anyway, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it's it's actually what a, a good analyst should be is very similar to making sure we're getting the facts right, being more objective. So you want to have devil's advocacy within the team, and investigative journalists kind of work as a separate team. They're basically there to find faults with our existing names. So what I call them internal critics. Uh, and as you can see, a lot of analysts get pretty uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. uh, internally. I'm talking about, but I think the idea is. My view is I would rather have internal debate and discussion 
rather than the markets criticizing you. If, when the markets criticize you, that's expensive. <laughs> to, to, say, to say the very least. Um, so something else you said previously, um, it seems most investors evaluate managers just by looking at their past performance. You suggest that that's the wrong approach. How should an investor evaluate a potential manager they're interested in hiring? Look, you can't undermine the past performance. It matters because, I mean, that's that's a good starting point, but that's all it is. It's a starting point. And I feel that um, uh, the other way to look at it, which is actually more important, provided there's a good past track record, because as somebody said, past performance is not a good indicator of past performance. Right? Now, why is that? Uh, as I say, I'm, I'm contradicting myself. So I like the yin and yang debate in every mm-hmm. every discussion. So the reason is, Decision makers can change, so you you know firm sell past performance, but you know, but who took the decisions ten years ago? Maybe totally different guy. So you got to be careful about because you know people sell the teams and so on and so forth, but it's not an indicator of decision maker and who was a decision maker. So you got to be careful when looking long term track records. Is the same individual or individuals who are taking the decision? And if it's a one individual like a PM, you know somebody might have changed, but the firm might be selling the track record of the firm, right? So you right. know you got to be careful that. But more importantly, I think the way to look at or to assess a portfolio manager or track record is how did they do in different environments? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you look at growth manager today, most of them look like geniuses. Right. Right? Now, most of these wouldn't have a good track record going back to, if you go back 2000, 2003 era, how many actually of them did well? So this whole growth and value debate is is kind of, I personally feel it's, 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 it's nonsensical in a way because why would you consciously overpay for anything? Mm-hmm. So, so you've mentioned previously um, what you've described as quality growth. What is that and how does that relate to the, the value growth debate? So first of all, nobody consciously looks for bad quality. I don't know if you have somebody right. come across here and said, look, we buy low quality, high prices, right? Right. A growth manager, value manager, that's all wonderful. In fact, one of the things I've observed is the more disciplined people sound, the more rigid they are and more chance of them blowing up. Mm-hmm. St- stability is a close cousin of stagnation. And discipline is a close cousin of rigidity. So how they adapted to changing environments. Look at Buffett. I mean, he's adapted dramatically. He was a low, low, you know, classic low multiple, you know, cigar butt kind of investor. And the, you know, move to a different area in terms of quality. You know, you know, high, you know, big mode, high battery entry businesses, and and now he's buying tech. And on top of that, he's done a whole bunch of private deals on the side, which are all nothing but cyclicals, by the way. Right. I mean, can you tell me one name, one one large part, maybe except C's Candies in Berkshire, which is not cyclical? I mean, is Geico not cyclical? Is some of the you know boot companies, uh, insurance, reinsurance, home building? What is brick companies, railroad, what is not cyclical, right? So this whole debate is much more around, I feel, at the end is you expected compounding and sometimes a cyclical with the high barrier to entry could be very attractive mm-hmm. and sometimes a very steady AD business could be very attractive. So like in today's environment, if you look at most of the value-oriented names, you're making a cyclical call. Mm-hmm. In other words, if the economy really starts ripping, they would do very well. So it is not that they are being given away to you because people they, they are being misunderstood. There's a fear of downturn. Hence, some of these names, whether it's car companies in Europe or hair or some of the financials, why are the banks been underperforming in the U.S.? Well, the fear is that you know NPLs will go up. So it's a binary bet on on future uh, economic performance, not necessarily a specific call on a company. Exactly. And I think I think I think I think that is it may be a perfect call to make by the way. So I'm not here to criticize that, but it is not something. Gee, they are totally misunderstood and you know they kind of um, underappreciate assets as such. Obviously, market might be overestimating the downturn if there is one. Uh, but I think I think I think it's much more around what are the earnings trajectory and what are we paying for. So if you look at some of the tech names, for example. Some of the SaaS names, right? The cloud names, which are mm-hmm. some of them don't even have multiple because they are not earning any money. How much of they are investing in the business? 
And how much of that is annuity-like business? Now, what I call the Amazon effect, that because you made money in Amazon, despite it not making any sort of net profit, um, it's being extrapolated a lot of areas. And a lot of areas, companies would blow up because they're not Amazon, right? Amazon did not have cash losses after, I believe, 2002 or something, you know, because it's a negative working capital model, which is a very different model than, than a whole host of other companies you're looking at today. But it, it does mean that if businesses that are willing to take longer-term view and willing to invest, chances are they probably would do better than folks who are very focused on short-term margin. And you saw with Kraft, right? I mean, if you look at the whole 3G model, why had that that has not done well? Well, partially because they're too focused on profitability. They cut down everything to the bone, and guess what? You're not investing in the business, and there are not many people interested in cheese spread anymore. Quite, quite fascinating. Can you stick around a bit? I have a ton more questions for you. We have been speaking with Rajiv Jain, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of GQG Partners. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things international markets. You can find that at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Rajiv. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward Thanks for having me. Uh, to having this conversation. You know, there is a group of people who are significant and influential in the world of investing that forget the public. Half of the investing world um, may not be familiar with their background and history. Um, you're one of those people. You're, you've been running a substantial amount of money for a long time, and I followed your career for a while. I think a lot of people uh, may not know who you are, and I hope this conversation helps more people learn about you and, and your background. Thank you. So so we missed a bunch of questions during the broadcast portion. Let let me um let me go through some of the areas we didn't get to. We talked about quality growth. We did not talk about the shift from active to passive. Mm -hmm. So first, what does this mean going forward? Is this a temporary shift or is this more permanent? And I can't help but wonder does the move to as more and more people become passive investors, does that create opportunities for the remaining active investors? Yeah, look, I think that's that's obviously the most important debate. And frankly, I don't think there's a debate anymore. I think it's a reality. And right. it's not a temporary issue. It's a permanent uh, structural shift towards passive. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reasons are, besides the fact that active you know, has an ad added value on an average. Right. 70% uh, uh, probably don't add value. Uh, but I think, you're, I think you're being kind. <laughs> but I think I think I think there are a couple of reasons where and and the second part of the question was whether it it helps active remaining active. It does because you know if if you're paying attention over the longer run, hopefully you should be able to you should be able to add value. But I think I think I think the big reason why is 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 number one is active managers charge too much money. Mm -hmm. They are being boxed into into in you know the, the box into their specific sandbox and the market changes changes colors so if you're a sort of let's say mid cap value manager that's wonderful to be compared but is the is is the end client really looking for a us mid cap value manager or you just talk about longer term compounding right so the segmentation has made life more difficult so if you're not able to break through that it's a problem in fact there was a time when people have accused me of being a value manager. There are time when people have accused me of a growth manager. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing exactly the same thing. So I think you, you need to have the ability to not be labeled for the rest of your life. Because, yes, of course, you won't buy higher quality, sensible prices. But sometimes the market gives you very high quality businesses with very attractive valuations. So why wouldn't you buy those? Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, and I think, I think that if, if you are open-minded... And if you keep your costs low, and that's an important part, because if you look at, especially on the institutional side, 
institutions' gross basis do actually outperform. The problem is on net basis, they underperform. Right. Like, it's I mean, the fee you structure that gets in the way. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the question is why are people still charging 100, 110 base point for US large cap growth mandates? What it makes no sense? What's even more shocking is you can find S&P 500 index funds at 150 basis points. That makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, that's hybrid robbery, right? So I mean, that, that, that shouldn't be allowed, actually, uh, because it's misleading practice, because typically institutions would not get, uh, would not get, you know, would not pay for that, but it's a retail. So it's kind of misleading. Mm -hmm. I personally find it misleading. So I mean, it's been around for a while. So I know you cut uh, fees five basis points on a couple of your funds. What is your thinking, and is this something that you're doing because you're comfortable with it? Are you responding to fee pressure in the industry? Do you plan on making more cuts in the future? How, how do you think about what's the appropriate level of fees uh, relative to the size of the funds and the performance of the funds? So something you said at the tail end about the performance of the fund. At the end of the day, clients care about net performance, not gross performance. Right. Right. And net performance means your fees matter. So what hedge funds problem is not lack of talent, it's the fee structure, right? There isn't that much juice in the game to have 220 and be able to add any value, unfortunately, right. right? I mean, how many hedge funds around in late 90s, let alone, you know, 30, 40 years ago, right? Right, went they, from 100 hedge funds to 11,000. Exactly, so so I think, I think so that's why one of the things we have done consciously is that we wanna make sure that our fees are below median and very competitive. Why? Because I want to be, you know, we want to be known as a firm to have added value, which is net performance. Mm -hmm. So you want to be, you know, very cost competitive simply because you, I want to have better performance, right? So it's actually in our interest. And then you can have a longer term sustainable client base because the higher you charge, the expectations go up on, on a shorter term basis of our performance, mm -hmm. which is not, not possible. So I think, I think to build a sustainable investment management shop, you have to be very cost competitive and the lower the cost, better your net performance is going to be. Makes, makes perfect It's not about sense. margin. So uh, my personal view is that you can't build a business with a specific margin target. That makes absolutely no sense. That should be, an, that should be a fallout of what you're doing, not a target itself. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. So you're, you're known as an international manager, but you also uh, run a, a US domestic fund how do you balance the two? They're such different um, environments, such different stocks. How do how do you go back and forth between thinking about equities in the U.S. and thinking about international equities? Uh, I have a, I've done it for twenty five odd years now, both developed and emerging markets, and I feel I'm a better emerging market manager because I do developed and vice versa. So, for example, last year the the implication of trade uh, we thought were clearly being underappreciated in a lot of Chinese companies. Meaning the tariffs and the, the, the trade the, war. The tariff and trade war. I mean, it's not about just putting tariff, but it also impacts Apple and a bunch of other companies here. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Nike, Starbucks, and Apple, I mean, this, 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 you got to incorporate the potential risk coming from what's happening in China. So in fact, some of the names that we did cut back last summer, which added ultimately added value, was primarily because of Reed on ground in China. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of cross-pollination. In fact, I personally feel that if you're learning a large cap mandate in US, on US equities, I don't see how you would survive over the long run without having good insights what's happening in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So you, you really need to have that level of sort of some understanding. You don't have to run an emerging market portfolio, but you need to have some understanding of what's happening in, in, in some of these countries because that's where the growth might become a lot of large multinationals. Are you in these countries on a regular basis? Do you do a lot of traveling, or does do you have your team um, put boots on the ground, or is that just not necessary these days? Yeah, you, you, boots on the ground is not necessary. In fact, what I found is a little bit counterproductive. Really? Why yeah. is that? Because people tend to become biased. It's like trees versus forests. You're so mm -hmm. close to the tree, you, you forget the forest, maybe on fire. Right. Right? And, and it, by the way, it happens more often. Uh, so so you got to be careful of that. But yeah, we do travel. But I think, again, that's part of the evolution. Corporate access to corporate management is a lot less valuable than it used to be 15, 20 years ago. Reg, Reg FD has changed Reg, a lot of It's that. changed. And I think that's a lot of why large shops struggling. You can talk to the CEO and say, look, next quarter is going to be great. And you load up on the stock. That used to happen in the 90s all the time. Sure. It doesn't work that that way anymore. And which is why. And you just have to sort of adapt to say that, that you know, corporate access is actually is important to understand how they think. 
But just because you happen to know Zuckerberg doesn't mean you're going to get the stock right. Right. So so you mentioned uh, you do both U.S. and international. U.S. equities have outperformed international now for at least yep. a decade and by a substantial amount. Historically, that's been a much shorter cycle, U.S. leads than international leads, and it goes back and forth. Uh, wh- what do you attribute this huge outperformance over the past decade to, and and when do you suspect um, global stocks and international stocks might uh, take the leadership role again? Yeah, I mean, if you take a very long-term view, these things tend tend to go in cycles, mm-hmm. right? I mean... Um, if you look at U.S. corporate margins, and by the way, why U.S. outperform? Because earnings growth in fast in the rest of the world. I mean, simple as that, right? But uh, all right, which raises the fundamental question: Why yes. have earnings growth been faster here than internationally? Was it the U.S. response to the crisis? Is it just the nature of the economy? What is it that why U.S. companies have been doing so well compared to their overseas peers? I think I think it's a combination of what some of what you said. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the European banking system, that did not sort of you know clean up as fast as what happened here. I think one of the best things there was just put everybody in a room and say, everybody's going to take capital. And voila, but you recapitalize everybody. Whether, whether you like it or, like not. It or not, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you forced capital down everybody's throats, which was the best thing that could have happened now in hindsight. Right. In Europe, you can be done, won't be done. Huh. Um, that's a problem. What, what about austerity we've seen in the UK and the EU? Was that a, How much of a factor was that, that they basically ignored everything Keynes taught us and tried to tighten their belts in the middle of a downturn. Well, that's a th- th- that's the whole problem in Euro in general is, you know, there's there's difference between what's happening or what was happening in Germany and what was happening in Spain and Italy and Portugal, right? Mm-hmm. So there were big differences in terms of rate of growth, unemployment, so on and so forth. And, and that's why you've seen property price in Germany go up dramatically now because it's basically free money. Um, so I think that's a fundamental flaw in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, there are some really good companies um, which can allow you to compound your wealth over the longer run. So if you take sort of 30, 40, 50 year view, you get these cycles in between. It feels like, oh, US is always going to do well or international is going to do well. For example, if you're sitting here in 2010, 11, you didn't make a dime. You, you didn't really make any money in US equities for the prior decade. Right. That's why a meaningful amount of money was going in emerging markets and non-US. Now, fast forward another eight, nine years, that's the opposite. So mm-hmm. I think these these things go in cycles. One aspect I would say I would highlight which is not being appreciated is the U.S. corporate profitability has gone up dramatically since 2001, 2002. I would argue a lot because of Chinese entry into WTO. And this whole decoupling, notion of decoupling with China mm-hmm. means that Apple has to shift its manufacturing base to other areas. Outside Does, of China. Well, outside of China, just an, as an example, right? Apple, Apple is just one example. That has to be marg- negative for margins over the longer run. So the corporate profitability, or U.S. corporate margins, are we seeing some sort of secular peak, not because of some cycle as such, but because now you have to go somewhere else to set up manufacturing base. So again, a lot of companies will not be impacted. Software names will not be impacted, but other companies will be impacted. So but that's you know that's that's kind of what makes investing interesting. So you did an interview uh, a couple of years ago with CityWire over in in London, and your answer to one of the questions was, and I don't remember the question, but it doesn't even matter. Long term performance, long term performance, long term performance. Explain. I think I think at the end of the day, it's longer term performance in corporate multiple cycles. And which is why I feel to 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 really judge an investor uh, or portfolio manager, you got to look at how they did, how they did survive the inflection points. Because if you think about it, what kills quants? Inflection points. It's almost a guarantee that the market cycles would turn into something else. I can't sit and forecast. So you need to be able to navigate the inflection points. People who did it in the late '90s got killed when the cycle turned in March of 2000, for example. Right. right? Then there was a commodity bull market. People called commodity super cycle. Well, we don't discuss them anymore as such, right? right. And I'm Super sure they'll be same. Cycle. What's yeah. that? Super. Same <laughs> in the tech side, right? I mean, right. You, you, there's a different breed of tech names that are doing well. Uh, you don't talk about Intel as much. You still talk about Microsoft, but you talk about Intel as much. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why you need to be able to capture a few inflection points to be able to see whether the manager has adapted or they keep beating the drum of we do A, B, C, D, rinse, repeat, and don't worry about it. That right. that actually makes me very nervous because you know that that typically. 
It's like saying you're going to drive from New York to Washington at 60 miles an hour, irrespective of road conditions. Right. Makes makes a lot of sense. So so you mentioned quants don't do especially well at turning points. Uh, arguably, the past couple of years have not been too kind to the quants, especially the ones with an emphasis on factor investing. Um, are we in a turning point now, or is this something different that's causing them to underperform? I think I think what's happening is part of that is a lot of the fact that everybody talks about factor investing. Question: How much that has been arbitraged away? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there was a recent piece in you know academia that once a study is published about a particular type factor or style, how well it works historically, the efficacy that goes down. Right. Right. So I think we sometimes we forget we are competing with ourselves. So once it is recognized reasonably well, the efficacy will be lower. Makes makes a lot of sense. You mentioned earlier the academic piece uh, that looked at fund managers who add value when buying on average, uh, but generally do a terrible job selling. And and I recall seeing that in January. Uh, and I had written about it, and the takeaway seemed to be that the two things the fund managers were very poor at selling were either stocks that had gone up a lot, uh, that were strong growth with momentum, they sold, because look how much money we've made, or stocks that have gone down a lot and had become very cheap. Uh, How much of that is a, a fundamental misunderstanding of why stocks go up and down, and how much of that is just pure behavioral finance and the application of emotions to to the decision-making process. But if you think about it, isn't the second one, i.e. behavior driving, how much stock's gone up and down? Sure. My view is that cost you bought the stock is irrelevant. In fact, somebody asked me the other day, what's your price of stock X, Y, you know, X? I said, look, I don't know. And it's not relevant because the moment you think about, oh, I bought it at this price, you're anchoring to that. Right. And therefore, look that how high it's gone. Right. It's because a, the market doesn't care where you bought it. Right? right. So you don't, and I think that anchoring is the biggest issue. And frankly, we anchor to our own knowledge base. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, knowledge is history. That makes perfect sense. The, um, so so you're, you're going to say behavior makes a, a great deal of difference, obviously. Yeah. To, to, now, why doesn't it have the same impact on buying? I guess there is no... There, there's no uh, endowment effect. There's no anchor. Exactly. You don't own it previously, so it's a fresh sheet of paper when you're making a purchase. Is that the thinking? Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that's why I've done a number of times where I would just sell the stock to clear my own mind. Because mm-hmm. this game is played inside. It's not outside. You're not fooling anybody. You're fooling yourself. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you reboot your own mind? And sometimes you might well sort of take it off the table. And a lot of times you don't want to read, you don't want to buy the name again. Do you not anchor on your previous buy or sell when you're approaching a name? I'll give you my favorite example. Before the i when the iPod, not iPhone, iPod first came out, Apple was about fifteen bucks with thirteen cash, dirt cheap. It ran up to about forty five dollars in a relatively cheap amount of of short amount of time, and then pulled back. And I remember selling that stock in the low forties. Thinking, all right, I tripled my money, and here it is, it's falling. And I said, if it ever gets back over 45, I'm a buyer again. And of course, it goes back over 45, and I'm like, I paid $15. How do I pay 45? What, what is this thing going to go even higher? And of course, we know what happened. That, that was a classic anchoring trading error. How do you avoid doing that when you do a, a clean sheet of paper and say, okay, I've sold this stock, and I'm just forgetting about where I bought it or sold it? It's difficult. I think. I think uh, I've been working on it forever, and I still have you know, you know some of us. You know, so I, I still commit the same or similar mistakes. So I think you can only work on reducing that, which is where you want to have the diversity in terms of how people think uh, about the names. You want to have a bull and bear case within the team, mm-hmm. right? Which is why we've actually hired folks who have good shorting experience. Um, we're not going to launch long short. How many lo- long only folks? are willing to entertain folks who have shorting experience in the team. That's interesting. So the way you deal with behavioral issues is you make sure that a lot of people at the table have broadly different views and histories and perspectives. Yeah, I've had client meetings where a name um, 
I, I said, look, this is a bull and this is a bear, and I'm out of the room. You can talk to both of them. We don't own the stock right now. We've owned it before. So, but look, I think, I think, I think you just have to work on reducing that. It's very hard to get over that. Hmm. To, to say the very least. I know I only have you for a finite amount of time, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, tell us, what was the first car you owned, year, make, and model? Uh, it was Honda Civic, mm -hmm. 92. Right. It's hard to kill those cars. And it was stick shift because they're trying to save a little bit of money. Right. Uh, same same for me. <laughs> those cars are all but impossible to kill. They, they run forever. Yes. Uh, what's the most important thing that people don't know about Rajiv Jain? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to say because a lot of pretty much everything is public. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but maybe the fact that I've not been on a golf course for the last ten years now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, oh, were you a big golfer? No, no, I was never a big golfer. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but I live in Florida, and I used to drive through a golf. And it's course. all golf courses. It's right? all golf courses. So, <laughs> so who were your early mentors? Who helped influence the way you think about stocks and investing? Um. I can't say I've worked with any individual way sort of who has mentored me, but obviously you've learned a lot from reading Buffett, I think, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or there's a whole slew of, you know, Phil Fisher. Um, Phil Fisher, what, what, that name's familiar. Where is Yeah, the, he wrote that, you know, uh, the, the famous book in the 50s, and he has influenced, uh, you know, a lot of folks, including including Buffett. Huh. Uh, 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 common stocks, uncommon. Oh, profits. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, that's not Ken Fisher's father, is it? I, I, th I think it is. I think it is too. Yes. Uh, that's quite interesting. Speaking of books, what are some of your favorite books? Fiction, nonfiction. What What do you like to read? So, um, I, I I I I think the lessons for corporate America probably is one of the better from an investment perspective. I feel, and anything Buffett has written, obviously, is is worth you know definitely worth reading and rereading. Meaning his annual letters or annual letters, uh, and you know uh, some of the transcripts from his uh, and you know AGMs that kind of thing. I, I went to grad school with a guy named Lawrence Cunningham who came up with a brilliant idea twenty five plus years ago of taking Buffett's annual letters and printing them in a book. And uh, well, that's what I'm talking about. Core lesson for corporate America. So that's Cunningham's book. That, that I went to school with him, yeah. and who would have known back twenty five years ago? That was the thing, and it's become, I think, an annuity. Any any other books you want to mention? Yeah, look, I think I think I think I feel that it has to be a little more holistic. Um, so I do quite like the Art of Happiness by I think it's by Howard Cutler or something. Mm -hmm. There's an interview of Dalai Lama. Um, oh, really? Yeah, uh, and um, you know, recently I thought this book by Ann Duke on betting that was pretty oh, interesting sure. book. Thinking the, in bets. Thinking in bets. The other, actually, I'm reading this book by. Rory Sutherland, which I quite like, The Alchemy, just came out. Um, the Alchemy? The Alchemy, yeah. Uh, he's, he's from the advertising side, so mm -hmm. it's kind of a colorful book. It's, it's a fun read. Uh -huh. uh, so I, I read rather eclectically. Mm -hmm. that, that's quite, quite interesting. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. I think I think from an investment perspective, um, what I'd, if I go back in two thousand eight, you know, I actually pretty much ended up exiting all our financial exposure by two thousand seven thereabouts. But I still a lot of exposure which could have been impacted negatively mm -hmm. because of slowing economy. And the fact that I was so nervous on the financial side, the question why didn't I connect the dots? And that actually led me to revamping the whole investment team over the years. How I thought about investment team. Uh, and in fact, GQG, as you know, I didn't bring anybody from my prior organization. Yeah, this, this was a brand a, new team. This was really a, a, I keep using clean sheet of paper. You started from scratch and launched with um, nobody from uh, your prior firm. What was the thinking there? The thinking is, again, you know, what have I learned, I mean, uh, over the years in terms of what works and doesn't work, how can create more diversity? And so try to hire with a lot more diversity in terms of folks with long, short experience, credit, long, credit experience, Full capital structure analysis, so uh, different type of investigative journalists, and I think I think that's part of learning evolving. In fact, there was again somebody who has covered a consultant who has covered this space for a while said to me something which is interesting. What they found was that the team that had no employee analyst turnover, the chance of them going under was the highest. Really, that's interesting, and that actually makes sense. This industry does a very good job selling how everything is stable. Everybody has been here since they were childhood and don't worry about it kind of stuff. But that's misleading. That leads to groupthink. Mm -hmm. So how do you sort of, re and by the way, I've done that kind of 
you know, restructuring before too. Because uh, I feel I'm better hiring now than I was 20 years ago, 15 years ago, right? I mean, you got to learn from the mistakes. So sure. that that's part and parcel of, which is why I, th- I have a cl- I thought I'll have a clean sheet of paper. And what would I redo? And 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 one reason I think we've done better now is partially because of okay, these are the mistakes. It's like tennis. If your backhand is weak, the good news is you can, imp- you know, in tennis you can't add somebody else to play a backhand. Right. In this game, you can. So what? How can I address my own weaknesses? Let me hire those rather than sort of saying, "Gee, this is the same group of people, and we all happy live ever after." So, so you mentioned golf and now tennis. Tell us what you do for fun when you're not in the office. Unfortunately, I neither. neither I, I tried everything, including golf and tennis. So uh, I don't think so. I would say that I'm good at tennis at all. Um, I like to read. I mean, uh, you know, eclectically, it doesn't have to investment at all. So mm-hmm. I think my best day would be having a good book and a cup of coffee and sitting alone and reading uh, on a Sunday morning. That probably would be that describe what I like. That that sounds like fun. So what is it these days that you're most optimistic about and what are you most pessimistic about? I think that um, there's still quite a bit of pessimism, generally speaking, on on markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking about equity markets. Uh the focus on uh, on what Fed is going to do is, and it's not an import, don't get me wrong, but there's real corporate earnings picture, which is, uh, impo- not, you know, is not unimportant. But it's separate from just where rates are. Do, if rates go lower, how much does that really help Apple or Amazon? Yeah, it, 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 won't, it won't make that big a difference, right? I mean, Amazon has not done well because of rates collapsing or something, right? right? It's, it's, it's a funda- it, they've fundamentally transformed how we, uh, you know, how we transact. Um, and that kind of transformation happening in a lot of different areas. So I feel that we need to focus on that, true to find the next group of winners. Um, uh, and, and some of the old companies have sort of restructured themselves in a, in a dramatic fashion too. That's a lot more important. So I'm actually pretty optimistic in terms of where the world is. I'm not saying the market's going to go up next year or something. Mm-hmm. But, but because sometimes too much focus on Fed policy and, you know, and, and other things that are wrong in the world um, and by the way, that's why the Factfulness by Rosling is another fantastic book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I think the world is a lot better place today than 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 we give it credit for anywhere in the world. I mean, I I invested in frontier markets twenty years ago. I mean, I almost invested invested in Zimbabwe ninety eight after visiting there. Thank God I didn't. Um, we've invested in Botswana, Namibia, Mauritius, and all over the place. Generally, you go things are better today than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, broadly speaking. So that's the optimistic side. What what are you pessimistic about? I think I think I think this um, the trade war issues I feel are much more deeper rooted. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a paradigm shift that is basically unfolding and right in front of our eyes. Um, and I think I think there will be a transition period needed, you know, because of because of what is happening. And I think I think uh, if it's slow, I think we should be able to handle it. I hope it's not too fast. Transitions just a matter of life. So I'm not saying it's good or bad. They happen. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So if a millennial or recent college grad came up to you and said they were interested in a career uh, in investing, what sort of advice would you give them? First of all, I would say that you have to be open-minded and humble about about things. If you're not humble, because what arrogance leads to is you become dogmatic about your views. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst thing you do in investing is become arrogant. In fact, what I've seen is my worst losses came when I knew I thought I knew the most because you become dogmatic. So being open-minded, humble is important. The second part is you always have to think about giving back. So we, for example, at GQG launched our foundation within basically a year and a half of launching with employee matching. We've, you know, uh, It's important to give back. I mean, this industry pays well. We need to think about how we sort of, you know, from a societal perspective, how what are we actually thinking about giving back to the society? So so how does that work, your matching? If an employee makes a comes up to you with a... Um, appropriate philanthropy or charity, GQG will match whatever the employee. Yeah, puts so there's in. yeah, so we we try to be thoughtful about it. So there's a separate committee. I'm not on the committee within the firm from different areas of the firm who would approve that, uh, and then we would match. Uh, but but that foundation is also now started actively giving out for from an, you know, education, healthcare, you know, especially kids and 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 few other causes. And finally, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you were first ramping up? That I, that I know a lot less than what I think. Mm-hmm. I think you, say, you begin to appreciate your own 
um, uh, uh, yeah, 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 you, you, let me rephrase that. As you grow older, you tend to appreciate what you don't know a lot more. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the strength and that actually makes you not only a better investor, but a better human being. So I think I think it's important to, and I I feel I I feel I know a lot less today than I thought I knew 30 years ago, um, and that's important part of not just investing but life. Makes perfect sense, Rajiv. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking to Rajiv Jain. He is the chairman and uh, chief investment officer of GQG Partners. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 250 such conversations we've had over the previous five years. Uh, Be sure and give us a review, and uh, if you want to make any suggestions, comments, feedback, write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these podcasts together each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Uh, Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.